All right, so what, what Tyler wanted me to talk about was, so we've, we've mostly been talking about dispensationalism. And especially if you're new to this, what's going to happen is you're going to get out and you're going to get all excited. You're going to start sharing this with people. You have friends. And you're like, you're probably like me. I have great friends that are not dispensational at all. I have post-millennial reform friends. I have amillennial reform friends. I have amillennial Pentecostal friends. I have all these friends that just disagree with me about this. We talk about it all the time. And one of the first things you'll start to hear is some version of this. You'll hear, oh, yeah, you're a dispensational guy. That's that Cold War theology. Like, that's all new stuff. Like, you know, we believe what the churches always believe. You believe that new stuff. You'll hear that. Oh, yeah, dispensational. That was invented by a guy called John Darby in the 1800s, don't you know? Or, oh, yeah, dispensationalism. That's because you read a Schofield Bible, and that's what Schofield said in all his Schofield Bible notes. Now, I have the advantage of I've never actually seen a Schofield Bible. So I certainly didn't learn dispensationalism from there. I didn't know who John Darby was until Tyler told me to prep this study on John Darby. So I was, that's not where I learned it from. But these are, there's a reason why people bring this stuff up. Is Until fairly recently, from a historical point of view, this has not been how the church has thought about Bible prophecy. However, that does not mean that this is new. There's a very large gap in the middle of church history where the way that prophecy was studied and looked at was not the way that we've been talking about it here. And that gap is an important gap. And so what we're going to talk about is basically a little mini historical overview of what has the church thought about in prophecy and, and you know, covenant versus dispensational theology, from, starting from the very beginning. What did the apostles think? What did they write about? What did the apostles' disciples write about? What did they say? And then we're going to go on from there. And what you're going to see is that our, the way that we look at a dispensational, premillennial, literal interpretation of Bible prophecy is not something that was invented by John Darby. It goes back to the earliest recorded times in church history. It's just something that didn't last very long in the church, and there's very specific reasons for that. So, to go all the way back, the early, the original, basically, beliefs of the early church, if you go back to the second century, meaning like the 100s AD, or maybe even to the first century before 100 AD, you're going to find people writing about some of the following beliefs about what was going to happen in the future. And a lot of them would line up basically with what we've been talking about, a premillennial dispensational view of history. They'll say, okay, well, we believe that God works with people in different ways through history. God worked with his covenant people Israel this way, but he's working with the church in a slightly different way. And that was pretty easy for them to wrap their heads around because some of them were Gentiles and some of them were Jews. So it was easy for them to say, yeah, it seems like we all got here different ways, but yet here we are, right? That wasn't a hard jump for them. They believed in a sudden return of Jesus for his church. That wasn't that difficult because, look, some of the last things Jesus said, that's what John said in his, in his, you know, his apocalypse is one of the words that used to, you know, apocalypse means revelation. So like there's even some old Bibles that'll say the apocalypse of John, right? So they said, hey, John said that, that was, all this stuff was going to happen. That's what we're going to expect. We heard in the last couple of sessions where Pastor Troy and Pastor Tyler said, look, there were believers who were so bummed out because they knew somebody that died and the rapture hadn't happened yet. That's how imminent they thought this thing was going to be. They were thinking, we're, we're not going to die. Jesus is going to come back before that happens. That's what they expected. They also expected a period of actual tribulation and wrath. Then they expected there was going to be a literal thousand-year for real life kingdom actually on earth that Jesus was going to be in charge of. They expected all these things in the early church. That sounds pretty much like what we've been talking about all weekend, right? And where did this come from? This was passed down from the Apostle John to his disciple Papias, as well as another one of his disciples, Polycarp. And it was the main view that was held in the early church, especially if you look at the area in Asia Minor or Turkey, because this is where a lot of these disciples were teaching coming from. So remember, that's the Apostle John, the guy who wrote Revelation. 
he is literally speaking face to face with Papias Polycarp, these guys, and then Papias and Polycarp are writing down and saying, yeah, when I hung out with John, this is what John thought his book was about. And they say things like this, well, John thought that there was going to be a real millennial kingdom that we were going to hope to participate in, where Jesus was actually going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He thought that there was going to be a quick return of Jesus, a sudden return where we're going to be snatched up and we didn't know when it was going to be. All these things that we've been talking about. Now, I want to underline this because it's going to be important later. The men who heard the, John the Apostle's voice passed this on as the authoritative view that Jesus was going to return imminently. There was going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom. We can trace this, and this is what the early church used to call the living voice. The living voice was a, was a phrase they used before they even had totally collected Scripture. In the earliest, earliest time of the church, they prized the idea that they were still alive for the living voice, people who had face-to-face -face spoken to Jesus. And in the case of John, face-to-face -face had spoken with an appearance of the risen Christ. Like, he had seen Jesus with his face was all lightning and shining and all that, right? And so they, they, they were so excited by that idea, and they were so sad when it started to literally die out, when these men started to die, and, and you couldn't talk to them anymore. So what did these people who had that living voice say? They heard the opinion of the man who'd actually received this vision, and they said, this is what we think, this is what we're expecting. And this, and this wasn't just, by the way, just disciples of John. This was the view in the church, or at least, the very least, the vast majority view during the early church. And by the early church, we're talking about about to the time of the 300s AD. Well, what changed? Dr. H. Wayne House, sorry, I'm going to do some quotes because it's history, that's how it is. From the late 1st century until the time of Augustine in the 4th century, so beginning in the 300s, some form of pre-millennial expectation of Jesus' return was either the dominant view or, or was held by a number of prominent leaders and theologians of the church, those who were premillennial in Asia Minor were influenced by either a literal reading of the Old Testament, similar to the Apostles, and similar to what we see in the New Testament, like we talked about, right? They read the Old Testament, they said, this seems to say that this is going to happen, let's, let's look for that. Or, by association with John the Apostle, now this is in contrast to the largely allegorical manner of reading Scripture, and the increasing anti-Semitism, and the ecclesiastical triumphalism, those are very 25-cent words that just basically mean when, once the church started winning, these things started to change. And then people saw no need for a literal kingdom in light of the political nature of the church in the 4th century and afterwards. So, did you catch what just happened? There was a major transition somewhere in the 300s where people stopped feeling the need to literally look at what the Bible said about future prophecy, future expectation for Israel, Jesus coming back and setting up a literal kingdom, and they started to allegorize all of these things, fit the church, like we've been talking about, into all these things. So yes, every time you read Israel, that, that's kind of a promise for us that we get. And what changed? In 313 AD, Constantine ascended to the Roman throne. Now Constantine, especially if you grew up like I did in a certain kind of school of Christian history, Constantine is held up as a hero. That, unfortunately, is pretty much a historical myth. And, and why do I say that? Well, the reason is because Constantine gets held up as this wonderful example by a lot of times people who do not agree with us in eschatology. <laughs> and they're looking for a present church kingdom, a powerful church authority to come in and set things right in the world. And so they see Constantine, of course, as a good thing. Great, now Jesus is advancing his kingdom. A, a, you know, a Christian king, a Christian emperor is in charge of the Roman Empire. That's exactly what the church thought in that day, too. They were very excited. They were, this to them was like, oh, look, Jesus is doing it. And you know, like, it's super easy to dog on, especially the early church and the Catholic church. It's super easy for us as Protestants to look back and say, oh my gosh, this is a collection of terrible people. Their theology is all whack. They're doing this dumb stuff. Look at these crusades. Can you even? That's easy for us to do. You have to understand that, number one, 
This was the church in their day. And they have flaws like we have, but this was God's church. God was working with them. There was God was saving a remnant. There was born-again people among this church. You also have to realize that it made a lot of sense for them. Look, they're looking at the world and they're saying, look, we're doing it. We're winning. <laughs> the church is on the move. We're, we're in charge. We're in the halls of power. This is great. It felt, I'm sure it felt encouraging to them. Surely we can understand the feeling of getting excited when we get some political clout. I think we can forgive them a little bit for this, right? Now, hold up. But here's the problem with all of these things. Earl Cairns says the church became at home in the world as members gained material possession and prominence, such as Eusebius enjoyed in being at the right hand of the Con at Constantine in the Council of Nicaea. Who's Eusebius? He wrote a laudatory biography of Constantine, and then he wrote an ecclesiastical history, which sought to present the story of the church from Christ's ascension to her present rise to prominence in the 300s. The earlier church fathers, such as Papias, remember Papias is a direct disciple of John, had held a premillennial hope. And Eusebius starts to just attack them in writing and saying, that's ridiculous. We know now that that's dumb. We liked Papias. He's cool and he's sweet and he's old, but he's totally wrong about this millennial thing. That's, that's wrong to believe. It's also, you know, we don't like it. It's kind of crass. He just wants to enjoy all these paradises and these delights, but that's not what it, any of it means. It's talking about Rome. It's talking about the, the church. That's what it's talking about. There's a change in how these things are, are, are interpreted. Church and the state are now seen as two arms of God to serve him in his developing kingdom. And Jerome, another church leader at this time, insists that the saints would not have an earthly millennial kingdom and wrote, then let the story of the thousand years cease. The story, right? And they're using story like, like the fairy tale. This, at this point, a belief in a literal millennial kingdom and different dispensations of God work, God's work with humans becomes a minority view there's still some in the church that held it all through the next basically 1,200 years and even further, but it was not the majority view anymore. The majority view was what we would call probably an amillennial view, which means look around. Welcome to the kingdom of God. We're here. We're ruling it. God is giving us the power and the authority to administer it, and we're trying to move it forward, and this is the God's kingdom. We're living in it. Look, Satan is being bound. The church is on the move. These are good things that are happening. Now, again, you can forgive him a little bit. They, they, they got ahead of themselves, but th there were some good things that were happening. Look, would you rather be ruled, hopefully, by a good you know, king who's trying to do things the way the church says, or, or a Saracen you know, Muslim, or a, a goth who's worshiping trees? Like, you know, obviously, in some ways, the church moving forward was a good thing, and God did good things. I mean, look at the story of like Ireland, where they're sending out these missionaries, and these people are getting saved from Druidic religion. The church was on the move. God was using all these things, but... People got their eyes off of what spiritually was happening and they placed their eyes on the political kingdoms of this world and said, look, that means that now we're fulfilling all these prophecies. Which ones? Well, the ones where it says that, you know, the church is going to, that Israel is going to rule and reign over the nations. That's not yours. But they went and they reinterpreted these things allegorically and they said, it's ours now. Israel means the church. That's our prophecy that we're, we're fulfilling these things. Now, Here's the problem when you start doing this, when you start reinterpreting what you believe about Scripture based on what you're seeing happen politically. Politics change real fast. Within less than two centuries, Rome was completely laid waste as barbarians just rolled through it. This, by the way, caused a major problem in the church. Tons of ink was spilt by people saying, well, now what? Rome's burned. <laughs> like, there's no emperor now. What does this mean for our system? Unfortunately, they didn't change anything. They just kept rolling with this allegorical interpretation and they kept spiritualizing on top of spiritualizing to keep saying, yes, 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 but the, but the actual city of God is, is everywhere and it's okay because we're, you know, they just kept trying to work on this, this spiritualized interpretation of both the Old and New Testaments. 
And this continues through the Catholic Church to be the essentially, that amillennial view continued on in many ways, in many, many parts of the church. It's been an unbroken lineage of this is how they are looking at eschatology. And remember, we're talking about eschatology. Many of them are saved. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be throwing rocks at them for this stuff. But it's worth having a debate over. And here's why it's worth having a debate over. It changes very important things about what you see the church's role in the world to be. We're going to talk about that tonight. And it changes also the way you treat God's people. And that's where it starts getting really serious. Amillennial replacement theology continued to be the standard, not unchallenged. There were some different people who popped up for the next couple thousand years to say, no, 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 wait a second, this doesn't seem right. But basically the standard, even past the time of Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther, right, he comes on the scene in the early 1500s. He looks at what's going on in the church. He says, this is awful. We're not reading the Bible. Even the priests don't know how to read in some cases. What are we doing? And he starts making changes, and God uses the Reformation. And God did use the Reformation, right? Like, amazing things happen. It's great. We're thankful for that. However, the Reformation, like any move of God, once it starts to lose steam in the spirit, people start to take up the arm of the flesh and trying to see if they can make it go. And one of the things that Luther failed to do, and the Reformation failed to do, is they looked at, well, here's, here's the soteriology. Here's the way that the Catholic Church looks at salvation. Is this biblical? No. We'll pitch it. What does the Bible say? Okay, here's what, here's what the church, you know, the, the Catholic Church says about ecclesiology, the study of the church. Is this biblical? No, it's terrible. We'll pitch it. Let's do it. Let's do it differently. They didn't get to eschatology. They didn't touch eschatology at all. They left, if you read, Luther essentially left untouched eschatology, which is really interesting. That's not how he started out. Early on, we're going really fast, but this is important. Early on, Martin Luther believed... He didn't believe like what we would think about eschatology. He was accepting of the majority view, but he did believe in an imminent return of the Lord. He believed that that was coming soon. Luther, one of Luther's favorite things to do was to yell at the Pope and the Catholic Church was the Antichrist, which is one of the reasons why he got in so much trouble. So he believed that it was entirely possible. And he's like, look, the Antichrist is here. So clearly God is coming back. I mean, it made sense to him, right? So he was thinking, right, we're, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back soon. But all that started to change. In his later years, Luther became extremely anti-Semitic. And he argued against the literal millennial kingdom and any future fulfillment for the Jews at all. And there's a reason why he did that. Uh, Corey Marsh is a really, really good paper about Luther from a dispensational perspective. He said, it's important to highlight that Luther's rejection of any future literal kingdom in Israel, one in which Christ rules from David's throne in Jerusalem, is what connects all of his anti-Jewish works. His abandonment of a consistently literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic not only fanned into flame Luther's growing hostility towards all things Jewish, but it provided him the structure by which to justify it. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying that all of your Reformed friends who are amillennial or postmillennial are anti-Semitic. That is not what I'm saying. I have them. If they're listening to this, I don't think that. However, I'm saying that this is a very real danger of choosing to read all these prophecies and promises that are given to Israel and say, no, 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 these are the churches now. When you take away the blessings that are in God's house for God's chosen people and you say those are ours, it is not that difficult to start to say, and you know what, what are you doing in here anyway? This is mine. This is my stuff. I'm God's kid. Get out of here. It's very simple to do when you've let go of what the Bible historically literally says about God's chosen people. This is exactly what Luther and the church did. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the only people at the time of Luther who were talking about um, what was called at the time a millenarian view, meaning we believe in a millennium, it's coming, God's kingdom is actually coming. No, no, not the church as God's kingdom. I mean, Jesus is coming back. The only people that were talking about that, wait until lunch settles and before dinner and go look up Munster and, and the revolt that happened in Munster uh, during 
Luther's day. And it's basically a bunch of people who were hopped up on very, very bad uh, theology, super culty type stuff. And they, they kicked out the, the prince in Munster. A bunch of peasants took over the city, said, yeah, it's the millennium. It's happening now. By the way, I'm in charge. Why? Because I can actually hear Jesus in my head. Oh, and by the way, most of your wives are my wife now. Stuff got really crazy. Uh, the, there was a siege that was laid to the city. The three ringleaders of the rebellion were uh, dragged out and tortured to death. Uh, people died. It was insane. Because all this happened now, this is also linked up with what's called the Peasants' Revolt, which is where a bunch of peasants say, oh, word, Luther doesn't like the church? You know what? We don't like the church either because they're ripping us off and they're taxing us and they're taking away stuff. Tell you what, we're going to roll into town. We're going to drag the priest out of the church. We're going to kill him. We're going to take all the stuff that's in the church and split it up between us. And now we're in charge because it's the millennium. Obviously, this is horrible. This is, and, and they would say, oh, this is Lutheran thought. And Luther said, it is absolutely not. This is not what he wanted to do. He was deeply grieved by this. So he begins teaching intense, harsh things against millenarian thought. He says, this is dangerous. It's getting, it's getting people killed. We've got to stop this. And as he moves away from any even vestige of this perspective that Jesus is imminently coming back, he starts to go back and say, and you know what? In, in 1520, Luther wrote this, this piece, this pamphlet, called That Jesus Was a Jew. And he said some things that were incredibly soft for a man of his time. You've got to remember, we, we need to, in some ways it's okay to judge history on a curve. If you lived in Europe as a Jew, basically any time, but especially in the 1500s, not a great place for you to live. So Luther being anti-Semitic wasn't uniquely bad. It was just he was bad like everybody else. During the 1520s, he's writing things that are incredibly touching and soft towards the Jews. He's saying, listen, they're God's chosen people. If, we, if, if they treated us in the early church like we're treating them now, none of us would have gotten saved. But they reached out and accepted us, and now we're pushing them away and hurting them. We can't do that. 20 years later, he's writing and saying, you know, the civic policy of princes in Germany should be to burn synagogues, burn Torah scrolls, take away Jewish possessions, and restrict their freedom of movement on public roads because they're cursed and, and they're obstinate and there's no way they can be saved, so we just need to kind of, you know, get rid of them within 20 years. Now, why is he doing this? It's, I need to be really careful when I say this, but here's what you need to understand. Eschatology matters, and how you read the Bible matters. So when you change to an allegorical interpretation, it is not difficult for you to start making very bad mistakes about the way that you're looking at scripture. And it's easy for you to slip into these fleshly ways of interpreting that seem to align with what you want politically and what you want in other ways, or what makes sense to you, because you say, oh, well, you know, if it's an allegorical interpretation, then what I think is going to happen is the church is, is, is in charge, is receiving all these promises, and that's an easy thing to allegorize. A literal interpretation binds us in a lot of ways. It's restrictive. When you're interpreting scripture literally, you can't say whatever you want. And there's a lot of things you want to say that the Bible will not allow you to say. That's good for you. And this is part of the problem is, yes, in a lot of ways, we don't see a return of a premillennial um, kind of more dispensational thought until the 1800s. Actually, before, the Puritans were some of the first people that started looking at this again. But it's very late in the scene where people start saying, wait a second. This isn't how we've always thought. This isn't the only way to look at this. And people start returning. And John Darby was one of the early people who did this. Now to say, see, dispensationalism, that's a new thing. You won't find that in the Bible. I got news for you. You won't find the word dinosaur in the Bible either. You know why? Because like the word dispensationalism, the word dinosaur was invented in the 1800s. <laughs> okay, so this is a newer word that we've invented to describe something in a modern sense, right? So no, you're not going to find that word. But the seeds of a literal biblical reading and a futurist understanding of Revelation and the belief that God 
God's going to spare His church from His wrath and, and an imminent return of Jesus, that's been present throughout church history, including even in a minority view at the height of when the church was interpreting these things in an amillennial sense. Now, if you think that the Bible should be read literally as the text allows, and you believe from the text that Israel has a role to play in God's plans, then dispensationalism, whether you believed at the time that that was the systematic name for what you thought, right? The early church authors are not writing down, we are dispensationalists. No, that's not what they're saying. They would use a word called chiliasm, which means that they believed in a thousand year reign. It's just a different word. Nobody uses that anymore. But that's what they used, right? So we didn't use the same words, but this belief was the earliest doctrine of the church on things to come. And if you go back and you study the reason why it was set aside, in my mind, humbly, I would say, that's not a sufficient reason to set aside a doctrine of the church because you see a political fulfillment that you desire or that you think that we're going to change the way we read what's going on here in Scripture because of what we see out there. That's never a good way to read Scripture, right? And then when you see, I would also argue, that a lot of times, look, as in the, within the Protestant church, one of our deepest beliefs is that we come from a tradition of reforming. Whether you call yourself reformed or not, or if, if you're a Protestant, you're saying, look, I believe that God is always working on his church and, and letting us look at the things we believe in, saying, is this right? Is this what scripture teaches? And it's easy to see historically that that process wasn't followed out completely in the Reformation. And I don't believe, personally, if I don't agree with the teachings of the medieval Catholic Church, not even the Catholic Church today. Look, the Catholic Church today doesn't agree with the medieval Catholic Church in a lot of places. They have tried to fix some things as a result of a Reformation in many ways. I'm not a Catholic for good reasons, but they, look, there's good brothers and sisters that are seeing some of that and saying, no, 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 that's, we can't do that. So if, if I don't agree with the medieval Catholic Church in their beliefs on how to be saved, or what the church should be, or what the church's relationship to the, the state should be, then why would I think that I would agree with those same people whose eschatology said, yeah, you know, we don't like the Jews and all those promises are ours now anyway. It doesn't seem like that, that way of approaching scripture, which produced these things that I very much disagree with, would produce a, a, an eschatology that I agree with. And so honestly, just reading this church history is really helpful for you to understand, look, this is not something that we invented. This is not Cold War theology. This is honestly a rediscovery of what the earliest voices in the church said about what the Apostle John saw on the island of Patmos.